once told me, which I'd never known if it was a joke, that you taught yourself plotting by watching The Bill on television and soap operas, but is that true? That is true. I'd forgotten, but it's true. I watched The Bill in the early days when it was actually very psychological. The events were caused by the limitations of the policeman and the virtues of the policeman, and it was all very low-key. Then when it got to be like any other drama, I, I lost interest in it. it they souped up the, the drama. I used to watch Dallas until I realised I couldn't stand missing an episode or not knowing what was happening, and it wasn't that important to me, so I, I stopped looking at it. Hello, and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Joe Hanya. And me, James Walton. And today it's Booker Novel of the Month time again. So I hope you've all been swatting up on the 1990 Booker winner, Possession by A.S. Byatt, whom you heard there at the beginning of the show, talking to Mark Lawson in 2019 and revealing the possibly unexpected fact that their plotting relied on the ITV cop show The Bill, and the American soap opera Dallas, big in the 80s for younger listeners. We also hope that if you haven't been swatting up on the 1990 Booker winner, Possession by A.S. Byatt, that you'll enjoy the episode anyway. I will guide you through. Possession um, is a 600-page metatextual epic which spans two centuries, and it's a, a kind of form of intertextual discourse, which basically just means that there are multiple kinds of text within one larger body of text. So our larger body of text is A.S. by its possession as a novel, and the metatext within it are poems, journal articles, and letters, which we'll come on to um, later on. Um, in its time, it's become something of a phenomenon. Since winning the prize, it has been uh, <laughs> alternately a bestseller, a Time magazine and BBC Best English and Best English Language novel of its era, and also the basis for a 2002 film starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Aaron Eckhart, which is fantastic because... 2002, I think, is like the cutoff point of when Gwyneth Paltrow was still cool. Um, that being said, we're, we're coming to possession this month, of course, uh, due to A.S. by its passing last November. Uh, but maybe let's set the uh, 1990 scene first. Uh, as for the Booker Prize, on the shortlist that year was An Awfully Big Adventure by Beryl Bainbridge, the third of her five shortlist appearances, none of which, sadly and quite famously, led to a win. She was named, known as the Booker Bridesmaid. There are also uh, four other big names, certainly then, uh, Penelope Fitzgerald with The Gates of Angels, Brianne Moore with Lies of Silence, John McGuckin with uh, Amongst Women, and Mordecai Richler with Solomon Gursky was here. Now, I say big names then. Um, I, I'm sort of interested, it's interested to know, Joe, whether those names mean much to you. As a, sorry, you're, I know I was wang on about this, but as someone uh, younger, born after 1990, in fact. I mean, to answer your question point blank, I haven't read any Beryl Bainbridge, Penelope Fitzgerald, Mordecai Richler, like... Rickler, rather, anyone anyone that you've mentioned. I haven't read any of their books. I'm just familiar with the names because it's my job to be. <laughs> oh, and you're very assiduous. Uh, but what, obviously one name that has stood the test of time is, uh, is A.S. Byatt. Mm. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about her? Yes, with pleasure. A.S. Byatt is one of those people for whom the word prodigious seemed to be especially made. She was a, a, a fairly incredible and talented woman. She was born in um, 1936 in Sheffield, Yorkshire. I actually didn't know this. She has two sisters, but you'd never really know it because um, one of them is uh, Margaret Drabble, who survives her, and the two had uh, a quite famous literary rivalry, which I'll come on to in a bit. The other is the art historian Helen Langdon. Um, and, she, and she's pretty distinguished too, isn't she? I mean, apparently um, when they were growing up, her mum used to say, girls, you all need to go to Newnham College, Cambridge, because I did, <laughs> and it's great. And they all did, which is yeah. just as well. Helen was the last one, and she got in too. Um, so as a, as a child... Uh, Baya attended boarding schools where she was apparently very unhappy and very asthmatic. <laughs> she describes herself as being a bit of a recluse. Um, 
and sheltered away with books may have started her love of reading. Um, she's quite the academic. She then attended Cambridge as an undergraduate, followed that up with a stint at a liberal arts school in Pennsylvania in the United States, uh, and then uh, went to Oxford. Uh, between 1962 and uh, 1971, she lectured at what is now Birkbeck University, but was then just a constituent part of the University of London. Then from 1972 to 1983, uh, she was at the Central School of Art and Design. And from 1972 to 1983, she lectured at uh, UCL. She, as much as being a brilliant novelist and short story writer, was also a brilliant academic. But I love this quote from her um, from the New York Times in 1991. She says, I'm not an academic who happens to have written a novel. I'm a novelist who happens to be quite good academically. Which just, I mean diva behaviour but I'm here for it. Um, when she left Oxford she went on to marry uh, an economist called Ian Byatt, uh, A.S. Byatt, uh, her maiden name is Drabble which her sister Margaret's kept, uh, hence A.S. Byatt and Tony of Susan. But this is the rub, when she married Ian Byatt in 1959 her scholarly grant was terminated. Um, men who got married at university did not lose their grants, in fact they got them increased. Um, and interestingly enough, she says of the whole affair, I got married in 1959 and went to live in Durham, which is another medieval place. In those days, if you were a woman, they took away your grant for getting married. If you were a man, they increased it. So I was with no grant, which secretly at some deep level I was pleased about because I truly would have rather been a writer than an academic and I needed to be forced into making that decision. Their marriage, however, maybe a bit predictably ended in 1969 and she went on to marry Peter John Duffy uh, and they had two more children. I, I think she had... Uh, well, she had two, but there was one... Oh, two. Great, there was one like, big tragedy in her life. Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll come on to that. Um, her first novel, Shadow of the Sun, was published by Chateau and Windus in 1964. There's this really funny anecdote that she gives in the Paris Review um, when asked about the process of publishing it, she said that she sent the manuscript off to John Beer, uh, a Coleridge scholar who was a friend of hers, and he said that uh, he thought the first part would make a nice little book, so he sent it to Cecil Day-Lewis at Chateau and Windus, who wrote to buy it and said, um, would you like to have lunch? And she says, so I went to lunch with Cecil Day-Lewis at the Athenaeum, where you had to eat in the basement because you're a woman. He kept muttering, boarding house food, boarding house food. He didn't really mention the novel. We talked about poetry and Yeats and Auden and Shakespeare, and it was literary conversation I had never had. When we got out on the pavement, I rather tremblingly said, might you be thinking of publishing this novel? He said, oh yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Cecil Day-Lewis, there was probably poet laureate at the time, well, I think he was, also father of, of Daniel. Yes. Only, only man to win the uh, three best actor Oscars. There you go. Talented family. So uh, it was followed uh, by a, a, a book on Iris Murdoch, Wordsworth and Coleridge. She was a great friend of Iris Murdoch's. And another novel, The Game, in 1967. But in 1972, as you've alluded to, James, she um, suffered the death of her 11-year-old son, who was uh, hit by a drunk driver, I think, which is just awful. And she stopped writing for uh, just over a decade, about 11, 11 years. It seems to have been a sort of penance, because he was... He was, he the, was 11 he, years he was old. A, he was, it was the year of his 11th birthday, the week of his 11th birthday. And she taught for 11 years. Yeah. And then, and then went back to full-time writing, I believe. Yes, yeah, she went back to full-time writing in uh, 1978 with The Virgin in the Garden, um, which began a tetralogy of novels which are known as the Frederica Quartet. I've got this quote here, I think from The Guardian, 
that says, like Miss Byatt, Frederica and her siblings came of age in mid-20th century England, a period when even highly educated women were expected to stop working if they married. Miss Byatt's own greatest terror was being trapped by domesticity. I had this image, Miss Byatt said, of coming out from under and seeing the light for a bit and then being shut in a kitchen, which I think happened to many women of my generation. Since the fame of possession in 1990, which is our topic for today, she wrote fairly regular short story collections until about the 2010s, including The Gin and the Nightingale's Eye, and uh, five successive novels, including The Biographer's Tale in 2000 and The Children's Book, which was shortlisted for the prize for the Booker Prize in 2009. I feel like that's a very kind of potted summary of, of her life, but I just want to read um, her introduction to uh, her Paris Review interview. For people who, who don't know, the Paris Review magazine tend to do these very long conversations with prominent writers of a given decade or century. I think A.S. Byatt's intro by her interviewer is just one of the most fabulous and sparkling descriptions that I've ever read and captures her as a person a lot better than I have with my summary. Okay, let's, let's hear it. It reads, Our conversation took place over the course of five days in the summer of 1998 in the garden of her house in the south of France. We talked over champagne by the side of a swimming pool rather like the one in her short story, Alamia and Sylvanus. As the hot day cooled into evening, our conversations had the feeling of relaxation on both sides. Dame Antonia spent the days working on the biographer's tale and I submitted to the rigour of cycling in solitude up the ferocious mountains that surround her house. One day we took a day off and drove to Nîmes, that beautiful Roman city. Dame Antonia's pleasures, they seemed equal, in the dazzling glass palace of the Carré de Art, old bullfighting posters, a ravishing Matisse nude in pencil and a superlatively delicious lunch at that great temple of the Art Nouveau. The Hotel Imperator Concorde were contagious. Both of us, I think, enjoyed the conversations. However, as a break from more arduous activities, and although the interviewer should always try and keep the conversation to the point, it is not always easy to resist a feeling of delight as Dame Antonia moved on to evolutionary theory, nonconformism, FR Levis and dozens of other topics with a sure, swift movement of thought. There are few writers so rich in intellectual curiosity, none perhaps, who so definitely regards the life of the mind as a matter of pleasure taken and given in equal measure. And and that's just that is lovely. Just very quickly, just just to make the point that that swimming pool behind beside which they're sipping champagne mm. has book of significance, does it not? Is it the swimming pool she bought with her winnings? Yes, it is. Yes, it's the, the very swim- same. Yeah, the swimming well done, pool she bought with her winnings. Um, yes, definitely a woman who was interested in everything. Spoke about every romantic language there is to speak. You know, read Dante in Italian, and um, but uh, as I say. Uh, whose uh, profession is kind of marked by her rivalry with her sister, Margaret Drabble, who published first. And I think in the early stages of Byatt's career, took most of the attention. And there's this interesting quote from Byatt where she says, well, now I'm over 60, I can simply say this. The reception of my early novels was completely meshed up with the fact that my sister, Margaret Drabble, was a writer. Nobody looked to see what I was doing, not for quite a long time. She had written more novels and she wrote them faster. I think it was extremely good for me in the long run because I had none of the things that most writers have, like the anxieties about reception. I just had this simple terror of being referred to as someone's sister. But I think, to be fair to Margaret Drabble, when you hear Drabble's side of the account, it's a bit more heartbreaking. She says in 1978, I was a rather lonely child when I was small. I made lots of friends when I was about 13 or 14. 
when it became all right to be intellectual. But I was a little child. I was often ill. I had a bad chest and was always rather feeble, hated games. I make myself sound pathetic, which I wasn't. But I certainly didn't feel I was part of the mainstream. I used to spend a lot of time alone, writing and reading and just being secretive. My sister was not very nice to me, my big sister. Uh -oh. I used to tag along after her and she was always... Well, she used to play with me a lot when we were little. I think this is what went wrong. I used to expect her to go on playing with me. And of course, she got bigger and didn't want me around. That made me very sad. And I always felt that I had been shut out, rejected by her. I mean, yes, no, I mean, they both tried to play down the sibling rivalry. And at the same time, I think probably as newspapers played it up. Well, but, they, but, but, but they didn't mind making the odd comment no, about no, no, it. No, 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 they didn't. And it was, and it was also, they, they referred to the sort of tussle over material. So as you say, Margaret Trouble goes first. And obviously, early novels tend to rely on the writer's childhood and family background and so on. And Margaret Drubble got it all. <laughs> so uh, I think A.S. Byer said in later life, one of the reasons she moved away into books like Possession and so on was because the sort of material that perhaps she would otherwise have had was 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 taken by Margaret. Yeah. Should we move on to Possession then? Yes, Which, tell um, us about it. It's a big old 600-pager, but I'll try and summarise it with absolutely tons of stuff in it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarise it as pithily as ever I possibly can. So it starts off with a, a, a bloke called Roland Mitchell, who is a mild-mannered scholar, um, very interested in the uh, Victorian poet Randolph Hen Henry Ashe, mm. who is fictional, uh, although um, apparently the book is, makes a, such a convincing sort of portrait of him that a lot of people looked up to find out who you know the real Randolph Henry Ashe was. He didn't exist. But anyway, <laughs> so he's studying uh, Randolph Ashe in the London Library, and he finds in a copy of Ashe's own personal copy of Vico, who... Uh, listeners hardly need to be told as a philosopher of the Italian Enlightenment, some letters that he had started to write, that Ash had started to write to uh, a mysterious woman that he was clearly keen on and that he clearly fancied and that he'd met at an event held by uh, an academic called Crab Robinson. Uh, Crab Robinson is real, so they're, they're, they're not mixing them up. Anyway, scholars for hundreds of years, or for, well, for a hundred years or so, had thought that uh, Ash was happily and faithfully married to his wife, Ellen, although he had to wait 10 years to marry her because of her parents' opposition. So the big question is, uh, who was the mysterious woman to whom these letters were addressed? And because this book does have its sort of cliffhangers, it has a sort of almost a thriller detective work structure, which we will maybe return to. So anyway, off goes uh, Roland, and he finds Crab Robinson's journal first, and all of these journals are are reproduced in the book. And this suggests that the the woman might be a poet called Christabel Lamotte. And then he hears from another scholar that the leading British scholar of Lamotte in Britain is a woman called Maud Bailey at Lincoln University. Um, which I think is fictional at this point, uh, Lincoln University, who's also distantly related to Christ Christabel Lamotte. So off Roland goes um, to uh, Lincoln, meets Maud Bailey, who is beautiful, um, not insignificantly. They go and see a Christabel's grave, and there they bump into Joan Bailey and uh, Sir George Bailey from another branch of the Bailey family who owned the house where Christabel died. And through sort of a bit of a coincidence, but anyway, they end up getting invited to... Um, to go to the house, and of course they're desperate to know is there any Christabel memorabilia there, and by crikey there is, because in the room in which she died, they discover a cache of letters between her and uh, and Ash, which we get 45 pages of, um, <laughs> and which prove that there clearly was an affair. Now they keep all this a secret from their fe fellow scholars, which is um, uh, naughty, I think, in the context of academia. <laughs> uh, there's uh, Roland's kind of boss, Blackadder, who's been working on... Um, a complete edition of Ash since 1951. <laughs> There's also um, Fergus Wolfe, who's um, sort of modern and trendy, and um, he writes essays called things like The Potent Castrato, the fallow geocentric structuration of Balzac's 
hermit heroines stroke heroes. I'm sorry, I, 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 you get the idea. It's meant to be hard. <laughs> and I, and I, I certainly meant Indeed it seems it so, is, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think I do, do, do full justice to its hardness there. So anyway, so he, he, he writes that kind of essay uh, that someone who could probably even uh, give you the proper name of. Um, so there's him, there's Blackadder, um, and then there's Eleonora Stern, who's uh, an American lesbian, sort of big, big <laughs> character. Uh, I, I mentioned lesbianism because that's significant, because she is therefore, by it suggests, uh, convinced that Christabel was a lesbian too, having an affair with her housemate Blanche Glover. So again, all, uh, th th these letters from Ash will disprove that too. And then the villain of the piece is uh, uh, an American academic called Mortimer Cropper, who's Ash's biographer, and he's buying up all stuff related to Randolph Henry Ash for his university collection in New Mexico. Then we suddenly cut uh, in a way that breaks all the rules of the novel at this point to show us Ash and Christabel uh, going on a trip together to Yorkshire yep. to study natural history uh, and, and ending up in bed. Um, and uh, I think Bias wanted us to be shocked because it looked as though we were just going to be learning about them through the, through the modern day scholars and suddenly we're plunged into, into their and shown their affair. And meanwhile, back in the 20th century, the detective work continues. More and more revelations pile up from more and more diaries and letters. Um, I think I'll stop all the spoilers there because with a lot of the books still to go. But basically, the truth about uh, Ash and Christabel becomes a kind of MacGuffin, like the Hitchcock with all the goodies and baddies after it. And it reaches a proper sort of thriller climax of Ash's grave during the great storm of 1987, um, after which we do get the full answers to everything, including a bit that only we discover because Bias tells us there's a, one final twist that only we find out and that the scholars never do. Ash himself is known as the great ventriloquist because he writes poems from di different people's points of view. Um, but obviously, um, one of the great features of the book is that Bias herself becomes a great ventriloquist, uh, reproducing letters, diaries, journals, and indeed lots and lots of uh, Victorian poetry. Um, good Victorian poetry, supposedly written by bo both of them, but actually written by her. And here is a bit from uh, The Letters. Uh, this is Ash writing to uh, Christabel Lamotte, as read by A.S. Bartessa. What a walk, in what a wind, never to be forgotten. The clashing together of our umbrella spines as we lean to speak, and their hopeless tangling. The rush of air carrying our words away. The torn green leaves flying past, and on the brow of the hill, the deer running and running against that labouring, mounting mass of leaden cloud. Why do I tell you this, who saw it with me? To share the words too, as we shared the blast and the sudden silence when the wind briefly dropped. It was very much your world we walked in, your watery empire, with the meadows all drowned and the trees all growing down from their roots as well as up, and the clouds swirling indifferently in both aerial and aquatic foliage. Uh, and that was from... Um the entire, the full ceremony of the 1990 Booker Prize, uh, which is available on the Booker's uh, YouTube channel. Starts off with a lot of sort of grumpy literary types saying, uh, we're not a very good shortlist this year, and it was absolutely fantastic. So some things never change. Uh, anyway, Joe, what, 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 I suppose question one is, what did you make of the book? I don't, like, whatever you think of Possession, I don't think anyone could actually deny that it's a really immaculately crafted novel. Like, everything has significance, and everything ties into everything perfectly there the the kind of parallels that are set up between the world of 20th century academia and these victorian poets is just 
like it's it's all really neat um and it's really witty there are a lot of send-ups of um second wave feminists or of um sort of rich grabby american academics or of even just the ridiculousness of academia and um status seeking itself i have a really complex response to this book because i can recognize that it's formally perfect and i can recognize the humor in it and the kind of some of the source material at least references to Tennyson or to various Victorian novels but I'm just a little bit I have the feeling that I've just not read this at the right time of my life it didn't really strike the kind of chord in me that it seems to have struck in a lot of people but I think this is a common phenomenon because I I asked around some friends who are Bayat fans or alternately Victorian scholars and um they they told me that the first time they read Possession, they were also left a little bit cold. But then when they returned to it after a period of a few years, that they just thought it was pure magic. So I, I would say that I'm not unaware of its charms. It's just that I've yet to kind of feel them. What about you, James? Uh, I, f- I think I felt them a bit more. I don't think I've reached the pure magic stage yet. I, I'm, I must say, I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. I really, I thought it was... Um great and it, she buys herself talks about george Eliot, who's her who's her favorite the idea that the surface is absolutely immaculate you just enjoy the surface but if you, you could go as deep as you want mm. almost endlessly deep um beneath that surface and I, I feel that's true of this book too and and we'll go through some of it but some of the things the issues that she i was going to say throws in it's not throws in but explores pretty thoroughly and brilliantly yeah um i think are fascinating Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's some cracking jokes. I think there's a good thriller plot. Yes, this is uh, 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 turning into a full-scale, almost farcical chase by the end. But uh, I, mean, I would have to say that of of a book that I've, I've enjoyed as much as I enjoyed this book, I don't think there's any of them where I've been as bored as I sometimes was in this. Yeah. We'll, we'll come on to this. Well, well, actually, the first question seems to come up with with possession is: Did you skip all the Victorian poetry? <laughs> Um, and what, what was interesting to me, and a bit, oh, I was almost scandalised. There's an episode of Radio 4's book club with A.S. Byatt um, talking about possession, and th- this question comes up: Did you skip the? Did you? Did you? Should should we skip the Victorian poetry? And she says, "Yeah." She said, "I would." <laughs> <laughs> I was most surprised by this. So her sort of dream reader powers through the book for the for the for the plot, uh, enjoys the fun, yeah. and then if they want, comes back and sees how <laughs> brilliantly. The poetry a works as poetry and b reflects all the other themes and the relationship and how much of it is you realize is owed to their relationship as well as to the, the big themes that the book explores but I, I i i i'm afraid i did just i did i did read every word but but she she's a great believer in in, in skipping so i suppose did you skip the poetry uh i'd say i probably skipped on balance about half of it i skipped more towards the end than towards the beginning because as with everything in this book, Byatt does a really great job of telling you everything from all possible angles. And she sort of, there are several poems that she uh, defers revealing yeah. um, because they have a significance that um, the readers in the novel, the academics in the novel, can't quite grasp, which is very clever because they're all trying to appropriate these poems onto their own kind of brand of scholarly theory or their own motivations. But the fact is, you, you've heard about these poems from at least three possible angles meanwhile you've got the kind of unfolding saga between um randolph henry ash and christabel lamott 
going on in the background. And you you more or less have already pieced together an idea of why the poem is significant and what it's about by the time you actually get to it. So I think in the beginning that 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 was less the case because there was less of the novel. You had less to go on. But by the end, I was sort of just a bit like, well, I know. And I guess my other problem with them is that um, and this is so clever of Bayer. Like it's so I, like, I can't stress enough like how wrong I am in saying all of this. Um, but um what she's doing is essentially imitating Victorian poetry and to some extent pre-Raphaelite poetry in, in all its facets. She's also imitating all of the things that are so incredibly irritating about it. And so there were points where my eyes just kind of glazed over because I thought, oh, God, I went through all of this as an undergraduate so that I'd never have to do it again. <laughs> and now I'm here reading it again for work with the same complaints. So, I mean, I I skipped like more towards the end but I did skip and but th that being said like as I say you know that it's more than likely that I will go back to this book in the fullness of time not for work and I'll be able to kind of drink it in a bit better but I, I agree with by it because she holds you so firmly throughout the kind of narrative of the book and also through the letters and the biographical details it 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 kind of doesn't make a difference whether you read it or not because she's done such a good job of setting you up with an idea of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, uh, the, 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 bit, the bits where I had to grip my teeth most, I think, well, as I say, there's 45 pages of correspondence between Ash when they first find the original cache of letters, yeah. which is followed by, about, I think, I think a 10-page po poem sort of vaguely related. But, the, the, but the, that 45 pages, it, you know, it, it does get to the bit where they fall in love and everything, and that's terrific. But first of all, there's lots of discussions of sort of marine biology and poetry and sentences like your citation from uh, Paracelsus was of course familiar to me yeah. you know that kind of thing of two Victorian scholars I, I mean you brilliantly ventriloquized as, as it's meant to be but you know there, there was bits of that but bias in that same book club thing shocked me even more by saying that that she thinks no no that all readers always skip when they're reading novels and that no that no reader ever reads every sentence of a novel that's not that's tell me that's not true Joe have I been a sucker all my life I, I think she's actually being incredibly generous because I don't think she's saying that people, well, some people do voluntarily skip over bits of the book that they can't be bothered to read, as we did with some of the poems, or you didn't, James, well, I did. But I think she's also being quite generous in the sense that, um, I don't know, haven't you ever had the experience of reading a book for the first time and thinking that you've caught every sentence and you read it again for the second time and you realise, oh, I did slip a, slip a sentence like it's just faulty eyesight or just you know maybe you changed from room to room and you did skip something I think it's an incredibly generous view and that being said like I'm being very harsh some of the poetry is like is very gripping like I think for me the best poem in the book and I I, I did not know that um that by it had lost a child at the time that I was gripped by it but it was the kind of fragmented poem that's found that Christabel Lamotte writes after well this is a spoiler but it's not after the loss of a child which may not have been the loss of a child or may have been a loss of a child you'll, you'll have to read to find yeah, out you, you will but you will find out but yes that that is absolutely beautiful so you know i think she's right you can skip it and you're not much affected you can read the bits which which i sort of by the end what i was doing was i was kind of scanning I wasn't like flipping over pages entirely but I was scanning and when something would catch my eye I would go back and read read it for pleasure but not not to understand any of the greater machinations of the plot but uh, yes no but when you do of course the poems are 
Well, for, well, first of all, as she says herself, she, yeah, she she takes uh, I think credit for her own courage, and these hmm. are, these are not meant to be minor poets. Yeah, these are meant to be great poets, and so she's writing great poetry. Yeah, and as I say, they all they all tie in with the themes, and they reflect each other, and they reflect what's going on. They reflect what's happening in the modern day as well. So you have got the parallel with Maud and uh, Roland very hesitantly sort of falling for each other. And in fact, what, sort of interesting, this is just almost in passing, but the Victorians, um, the Victorian couple get down to it much quicker than the, than, than the modern. Yes, well, the thing that you haven't mentioned so far is that Roland, naughty boy, has a, has a girlfriend at home called Val, who not only is his girlfriend, but also his breadwinner. So essentially, while well, he's off gallivanting with Maud, and he is very good about not sort of, about being very careful not to fall in love with Maud, He's being subsidised by Val, who's working menial jobs. She calls them her menial work uh, back at home. And that, of course, is a kind of parallel with, you know, Randolph Henry Ashner's wife, Ellen, and, and, and a kind of parallel with, with Blanche Glover, who's, whose work is never fully appreciated and who... Uh, that this is, this is um, Christabel's ha- housemate, who, yes. who does seem to be in love with her. Yes. So this figure of a, of a woman who, huh, now that I think about it, is sort of like by it saying that her, she's terrified of ending up as a scholar's housewife stuck in a kitchen yeah. um uh but this figure of a of a woman who uh, as uh, val is and as uh, blanche glover is who has so much to offer who is so deeply intelligent who is capable of producing really good work but is so undervalued in her time that yeah. she ends up just like <laughs> struggling like for a, very, a man <laughs> no no very very clever women just completely under achieving because of the world around them is, is is a big thing. I think that's partly um, linked to AS by its mother as well. I think a lot a lot of that yes. generation their feminism came from observing their extremely clever mothers being housewives. This is uh, one of the I think the most thrilling bit, bits of the book actually is is that her brilliance on the, the idea of intellectual fashion fashions yes. and how they get sort of refashioned because they're all there to answer the same question really. Yeah. So Ash Ash is. A classic, uh, what, what, what at school we used to talk about, uh, Victorian poems of faith and doubt. So basically, is there, you know, is there a God? And, and Ash is one of those poets who's beginning to think, no, there isn't. And so, so we're witnessing the death of a belief in God in the Victorian times. Um, but one thing that Byatt made clear to me, when, when, you, when that phrase trots out, the Victorian uh, poems of faith and doubt, what a massive deal that is. <laughs> yeah. you know? It's come up before in this podcast, um, in Arthur and George with Conan yeah. Doyle as well. This makes it, ex- and, but then, but then, in her way, she also draws parallels with, um, because um, by the time, by by the time um, uh, Roland and Maud are doing their thing, it, it's uh, uh, there is another thing that, that that cannot ever be denied, that the way that God rages could not be denied. Maud says, "The whole of our scholarship, the whole of our thought, we question everything except the centrality of sexuality." Mm. So. Now that's the new orthodoxy that is. Be, she's beginning to doubt slightly. Mm. Ayers Byatt once said she was terribly surprised when she, because she was reading through History of Ideas. I was terribly surprised when I hit Freud. It didn't resemble my, uh, it didn't resemble my experience. And there's a good bit of Freud uh, in the book. Actually, this is where Maud's beginning to doubt Freud the way, um, you know, uh, Ash is doubting God. Um, it's a bit bit odd now because I think forty years on, with Freud is we don't think is particularly true, do we? Anyway, they did then, and they're beginning to wonder about it. And this is Freud, famously on penis envy. And it says, um, and this m- must be one of the bits that Ayersbart didn't recognise in her own experience. Freud says, at no point in one's analytic work does one suffer more from a suspicion that one has been preaching to the winds than one is trying to persuade than when one is trying to persuade a woman to abandon her wish for a penis. See, 
it's just, it's you know, it's well, I think it's meant to be funny that, and uh, and it and it sort of is, um, and yet the sort of continuity is, as well at the same time. One of one of his 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 poems, one of Ash's poems, which we which we get as usual at some length, uh, is called uh, Ragnarok, and was seen as anti-Christian by some, and by others as Christianizing Norse myth. But it's it's clearly both, you know. Um, it's it's the way. Well, it says. Ash writes, the human imagination mixes and adopts to its current preoccupations many ingredients to new holes with a um, yeah. W, uh, as the stones of the Roman road go to the construction of dry stone walls. Such tales men tell and have told, they do not differ, save it in, in emphasis here and there, Maud says when she reads Ragnarok. It seems to me that you made Holy Scripture no more than another wonder tale. <laughs> and then Scroid becomes a wonder tale. Then the quest for the um, the truths about um, Ash and, and Lamont, these are just one to tell. People want to believe something and they persuade themselves it's true by gathering, well, by gathering what evidence they can or in, and ignoring what evidence they don't want to see. I think kind of Roland puts it a bit more pointedly midway through the book. He says to Maud, do you never have the sense that our metaphors eat up our world? I mean, of course, everything connects and connects all the time. And I suppose one studies, I study literature because all of these connections seem endlessly exciting and then in some sense dangerously powerful, as though we held a clue to the true nature of things. I mean, those gloves a minute ago, we were playing a professional game of hooks and eyes, medieval gloves, giant's gloves, Blanche Glover, Balzac's gloves, the sea anemones, ovaries, and it all reduced like boiling jam to human sexuality um just as leonora stern makes the whole earth read as the public as the female body and language all language and all vegetation as pubic hair maud laughed dryly roland said and then really what is it what is this arcane power we have when we see that everything is human sexuality it's really powerlessness and i th that's yeah. probably like the beginning of his kind of so, unraveling right and that, that, a mode again sorry in every age there must be truths people can't fight mm. whether or not they want to whether or not they will go on being truths in the future but do you think there's a truth like that in possession you know a truth that cannot be fought i suppose it might be the kind of um the extracts we get that the um academic characters in this book don't get to see the um the kind of vignettes and the letters that they never get to read the fact of what happened is the kind of truth that yes, they, they, the novel that's right, and they, they, yeah, no, that's that, that's brilliant. Uh, obviously, for Maud, it's that it, again, it's Freud. We live in the truth of what Freud discovered, whether or not we like it. We're not really free to suppose to imagine he could possibly have been wrong about human nature. <laughs> but I think I think even by the time this came out, I don't think anyone has the kind of faith in Freud that Victorians had in God or that academics in the eighties seem to have had in Freud. God, I wish I liked this book more. I, I think, I, honestly, it is a fantastic, and that it's, I mean, it's and we so are like so, rich. We are lovely. so scraping the surface. Here. Yeah, we are, but it's because we're we haven't even know. got onto seances and mediums Our and, how, and, how that, and how they make the dead come to life in, through <laughs> stories, and in the same way as the novel does, in the same way as yeah, the way it all just beautifully hangs together. And I still think you know you have to you do have to uh, you do have to grit your teeth through some. We're beginning to wonder deliberately slightly tiresome bits of academic study, but yeah. on the whole. The story kind of rattles along. Plus, there's all these things that you can think about as much as you can, and without ever coming to the end of it. I mean, I'm I think actually there's this thing that Byatt says yeah. uh, to your point about it sort of rattling along by its own speed. Um, she says that um, possession has that kind of dreadful energy that comes of having written it from the first word to the last with the whole book in your head. And there's this interesting bit, um, sort of. I'm not going to have time to find it now, but there's this interesting bit where 
um, by its narrator talks about letters being written for a particular reader, not for readers in general, just for one reader who is receiving the letter. And I kind of feel like Possession is a novel for Buy It. And it's brilliant because Buy It is brilliant. But for that, I also found it not impenetrable because I understood it, but I guess kind of emotionally impenetrable. And don't, don't we just finish by having a little wild stab at why this book that, uh, that I do really like and you, you sort of respect. But, I admire. But, but yeah, deeply. respect, but don't, but don't, but don't warm to. Uh, but, but we both agree is, is has its punishing moments. It's a huge seller. I mean, part of it was winning the Booker for sure, but but not, you know the books have won the Booker before without selling as much as this did. Why 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 was this a massive seller? I mean, but Byers herself looked absolutely bewildered by it whenever she was asked. She said, "No idea. Yeah. I, I never thought it would." She took it to American publishers. They said, "Cut out all the Victorian poetry. Cut out all the uh, Victorian journals. Just do the modern love story, and we'll publish it." And none of them. So it wasn't published in America until it won the Booker. Began to sell in Britain. And then they they took it as it, as it was, and it sold there too. But why? I w- I would say that maybe it's partly because it has such a dedicated cult following. I mean, the people who love this book really love it. Like they deeply, in a kind of like <laughs> the the true sense of the word, cult, <laughs> love it. And they do a great job of of advertising it. They really do. Um, and it's very inspiring to hear what they make of it and the the kind of i mean in a way it's spawned its own branch of academic theory this book no and it, has it, it it becomes something that people so believe in so much that they yes. they, 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 they dare go against it cf um, freud and god i think i think also by it is sort of the kind of author who you do uh, she's the sort of she's the sort of woman with a mind that you want to you want to know and be a part of at least once in your life. If you can't get to speak to her, which now we can't, um, but then you want to read one of her books. And perhaps because this one won the Booker Prize, this is the one that everyone goes to immediately. But I I think I'm going to try something else from her because I'm sure, I'm sure there's something that will click and I'm sure possession will click in a few years for me as well. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm just as confused as by it because I would not have pegged this as a, I don't know, well, maybe because it's such a kind of detective romp and it's got romance and it's got, you know, the aspects of the of that kind of big stately Victorian novel. I mean, to be honest, it's got all the component parts of a bestseller, doesn't it? Yeah, it has. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to find out more about Possession by A.S. Byatt, head to thebookerprizes.com. You can also discuss the book with our Booker Prizes book group on Facebook. Just search for The Booker Prizes. And remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. I suspect you will remember because we remind you every week. But there we are. <laughs> nice one, James. <laughs> we'll be back next Thursday. Until then, and to play us out, Here's more from the late A.S. Byatt, as interviewed by Mark Wilson. Goodbye. Bye. In the pattern you'd established, the book which should have appeared in around 1990 uh, would have been the third in the quartet. And indeed, I remember around 1982, you did a lecture um, at University College, and it was the book you were writing. It was the third book, and it was going to come out about then. Um, and it didn't. It was a quite different, unrelated novel, um, Possession, uh, which, as it turned out, it changed your writing life quite significantly. But what... Um, what led you to interrupt the sequence? Um, one has to tell the truth, as my father always said. Um, I had between the planning of the novels and the writing of them experienced an accident in the death of my son 
experienced it so violently that I, I found it almost impossible to bring myself to write the accident uh, which I had planned. The splinter of ice was not big enough and I, I felt very superstitious and frightened. And, and, and I was very worried by having thought in this abstract way about accident when I then had gone through it. And then I thought I'd do something else. And then I had this idea for possession, which came from the word possession. And I thought to myself, if you don't write that now, it'll get old and tired by the time you get round to it after the end of the quartet. And so I thought, I'll write that now and go right away from the whole of anything to do with my life. And, and I did it for pure literary pleasure. And I never thought it would be a bestseller, let alone mean so much to people in countries all over the world. People sort of appear from Korea and the Philippines and say, this is my favorite book. It's a book about academics in a library. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very weird, but it, it, was written out of, it was written with intense pleasure in the language. I think that's what did it. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamier and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supiot production for the Booker Prizes.